You're listening to the Footnotes Podcast, the weekly sermon companion from the teaching team at Real Life. This is a chance to dig a little deeper, chase a few rabbit trails, and touch on some topics that the team may have not been able to fit into their Sunday sermons. We hope this provides a glimpse behind the scenes at the discussion that helps form each week's message. Welcome to Footnotes. This is Paul. This week we got Marty. Booker Toth. And Aaron. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> And then uh, back at the corner, we got Tyler. Hello again. It's been a while. Welcome back, Tyler. We've missed you. Thank you. I've missed you guys, too. You I can't bit. see you wave. I just wanted you to know that. I am waving at you. I'm waving at you all right now. You're looking quite swell. Uh, swole, yeah. Swole. 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 <laughs> all right. Hey, uh, so we, it's been a couple of weeks since we podcast. Uh, we are in our second week of this Advent series, looking at the Gospel of John. And we didn't have time to cover... The entire passage, uh, we stopped at verse 28, even though we could have easily gone through verse 34, but we decided not to. And so we're going to kind of pitch it to Marty to talk about why we didn't do that and what we missed in those few verses. Well, if I were to have gotten, man, when I started prepping for that, I was like, there's so much here I want to talk about, but it was pulling me off of the main point. But I I jump into verse 29, the very next verse where he left off. Um, says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. Some translations say when he saw Jesus walking. And what we often don't pick up in the way in the world of in the Jewish world, the way that they see walking, your spiritual life is a walk. Uh, the word that they use is halach in the Hebrew, and it's a word that doesn't just refer to the 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 action of walking. It's a word that refers to how you walk. And so you can think of that in a literal sense of how everybody has a different walk about them. But in a more metaphorical sense, the way that, how do you, how do you walk out your spiritual life? How do you follow God? How do you walk in obedience? How do you do faithfulness? Um, That's really the idea of walking. And so when John says here, a very Jewish writer to an audience that most certainly includes a Jewish perspective. Uh, This verse really reads, when John saw Jesus, the way that Jesus was walking. It wasn't just that John looked up that day as he stood in the Jordan and saw Jesus and went, oh, look, the Lamb of God uh, who's come to take away the sin of the world. John had been watching Jesus live out his faith. And Aaron talked to us last week about... um, Jesus came to show us how to how to interpret the text with our life appropriately. And, and he came to show us what it looks like when it's done correctly. And John the Baptist, who possibly, you'll hear Aaron and I play with this idea of maybe John the Baptist was Jesus' rabbi, his teacher. There's some evidence in the text that would suggest that. It doesn't really matter. But John had been in a relationship with Jesus where he had been able to watch the way that Jesus walked. Mm -hmm. And because of what he saw, that's what prompted John to say, this is the guy. This is the guy I've been talking about. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is him. Uh, The way that he walks. So there was that like little mini sermon, which has all kinds of fingers to it. But... um, yeah, that works well with what John says later in his epistle, First John 1, if we claim to walk with him. like If we claim to have fellowship with God, then we will walk in the light. Yeah, I love Johannian literature because of the themes that are just from John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation, yes. 
he's so consistent with some of his big ideas. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I love the word Johannian. Johannian. Yeah, you but, can't say uh, Johannian too, if you want to. Or you could just say the stuff John wrote. The stuff. <laughs> hashtag the stuff that John wrote. Um, <laughs> maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've maybe you've heard of the guy. But yeah, and I think if there is anything else that came out of that, um, uh, it was this last in verse thirty-four. John says, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one, uh, which could be a reference to a few different things, but I think one of the leading possibilities would be Isaiah 42, where God says, this is my, this is the, my son, or this is the one I've chosen. Uh, you are the one I've chosen, and it talks about being a light to the Gentiles. And again, I go back, and this just keeps tying back into itself. So I go back to Aaron's message last week about... Um, you know, uh, our, our job is to um, be able to shine a light. Uh, our job, Jesus came to show us what this looks like. Our job is that we get to go show the world what this looks like. Very apropos to Isaiah forty-two. So, yeah. just a couple of things that came out of that, though. I was like, man, I wish we could talk more about that. Minor textual note: some manuscripts actually have the Son of God, right, instead of the Chosen One. Oh, and John's? Yeah. Oh. So, like, if you look at the ESV, it says that this is the Son of God, and then if you look at the NIV, it says God's chosen one. Wouldn't that be interesting if that was done on purpose? Because they link the, this is my son, whom I have chosen, Uh and him I am well pleased. Yeah. And and you really don't see chosen, well, I'm not saying it doesn't show up, but chosen one isn't necessarily a theme that John's going to wrestle with uh, in his gospel. It's going to show up in the other gospels. Sure. But John's going to wrestle more with the Son of God terminology. Correct. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, some other things. Uh, we have this whole discussion of Elijah, too, that kind of, that kind of sets the, the scene for this text as well. Um, yeah. Um, and it's just such a weird discourse, because in all the other three Gospels, John is clearly, clearly trying to say he's Elijah. He's wearing his Elijah costume. <laughs> We're told that he came wearing, uh, you know, a belt of leather. Cosplay. Uh, what's that? Cosplay. Cosplay? Yeah. His... Are you familiar with that term? No. No, you're not familiar no. with cosplay? No. Okay. Sorry. I guess I'm, I'm the younger, younger one out of you three. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's for sure. It, it's when people dress up as a character that's common, like a video game or movie. No. All right. You're such mind. a young guy. I, I am a millennial. We're getting so... probably use Twitter... We're so old, Aaron. I'd probably tweet. <laughs> All right, sorry. Continue. But anyway, yeah, he comes. He comes in cosplay. Did I use that correctly? Sure, sure. Man, my terminology is on fleek. <laughs> <laughs> um, see what I did there? Uh, anyway, so he comes wearing his Elijah costume, and uh, he he. You, you all dismissed Marty dabbing, by the way. I know. Yeah. Snap. Um, so we have. We have John and his camel skin, his leather belt, uh, eating carob locust, uh, and and we have this. Obviously, he's trying to say, "I'm Elijah." The three places that we're told in the other gospels he does his ministry mm-hmm. are the same three locations where Elijah has major stories, and yet in this passage, he says that he's asked directly after, "Are you the Messiah?" He says no, and then they say, "Are you Elijah?" And he says no. It's the only spot in the gospels. It's like. Wait a minute! You're clearly saying you're, you're Elijah, and 
I think, and maybe you have some thoughts, or Aaron or somebody might have some thoughts here. My my hunch is that what the what the Jewish leaders and the, the priests and the Levites that are being sent, what they're really trying to confront John about is why are you out here doing this if you're not the guy? Mm-hmm. If you're not Mashiach, Messiah, or some Jewish thought had Elijah being the guy. Some Jewish thought had Elijah being a forerunner. Some Jewish thought had Elijah being the guy who would come pour out the cup of wrath. But there's a key character that kicks off an eschatological era. Um, and, and I think what they're asking him is, are you the guy? And he knows that's what they're asking. And so he says, no, I'm not that Elijah. I am the Elijah that comes to prepare the way. Hmm. Um it just seems to be that one thing that makes the most sense out of all four Gospels, if we believe that those are recorded accurately, which I think we all would. But hmm. I think, I actually talked about this this week in my Life of Christ class. I think one of the issues that's going on is if he says, I'm Elijah, it gets him off of his mission of preparing the way because of all these cultural questions of, well, when Elijah shows up, he's going to answer hmm this question about the cup of wrath or this question about this doctrine or this dogma or this whatever. Like there's so many things that are like, well, that's the prophet's question. When Elijah comes, he'll explain all these things to us. And I think what he's saying is, no, I'm not that Elijah. Similar to what you're saying. He's not, I'm not that Elijah. I come in the spirit of Elijah, but I'm here to prepare the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a really great point. I think in a similar way, like when people come up and ask questions, like, do you think we're in the end times? Well, technically, Yes, I do think that, but I kind of know where that question's coming from, and so not to get into eschatology, but no, no, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even though yes, but no, that kind of thing. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like it. I mean, like even for for somebody like me or you, you guys face this as a pastor when somebody asks you, "Are you a pastor?" or even "Are you a Christian?" There is all kinds of baggage that comes with that question. Right. Yeah. That it may or may not be real conducive to answer it the way that you think True. they want to hear. Yeah. yeah, we see examples like this all the time, not just in Christianity. But I, I had someone ask me the other day what denomination our church was. And I was like, uh, well, uh, like I didn't know how to answer that because I didn't know where they were coming from. And it's like we tend to say non-denominational, but non-denominational today is almost denominational. Sure. Like, like it's, it, or it's just, it, it, it means nothing today. I'm curious. Did the uh, did the Jews believe in a literal um, like reincar- reincarnation of Elijah? That was my understanding. Is that was somewhat rare in there. It was much more. They wouldn't have gotten caught up in how li- is this literally Elijah? Is it okay. this because Elijah? Obviously, if we know our story, he got taken up in the fire. So yeah. it wasn't like he died and come back. But is he going to come back in the same way that he left? Kind of an idea. Which we know isn't true with John the Baptist. Correct. Like correct. He didn't, he didn't come down in fire. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Born born cousin of Jesus, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think the question would come with those assumptions for most people asking that question, but I don't know if we could say all. Okay. Because, uh, like in Deuteronomy, where God promises to send a prophet like Moses, I'm, I'm curious if that's how right. you would understand that prophecy about Elijah. It Would, would it be literally Elijah? It would be someone in this same representative role that Elijah held. 
And now I think you are getting very close to what they did understand, because a lot of the teaching in Midrash and oral tradition connected the idea of Moses and Elijah together. Absolutely. Well, and that's the next question that they ask him in John 1 is, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? Which Jesus, when he raises the widow woman's son at Nain, Nain, Mm -hmm. does it because Elijah did the same thing at Nain, which in the Old Testament is called Shunem, but he does the same thing, and they ask him that. Are you the prophet? Mm -hmm. So the connection between the prophet in the in the spirit of Moses and who Elijah is is absolutely connected. Yep. Now, and I think John is toying with the Elijah imagery, just not just with Elijah himself, but also with Elisha. Sure. That yep. and going back to even what we were talking about with John the Baptist being the the rabbi of Jesus, that how in the same way Elisha came from Elijah, Jesus would be this the second one to come after Elijah. Right. After John the Baptist. Sure. Yep. Uh, anything else on those? Uh, a few verses. I don't think so. So we've uh, we've been talking this week. We hit it pretty hard talking about new creation and how John uh, is going to be toying with these new these creation motifs that we find in Scripture, uh, things like chaos and water, and the Spirit over the waters, and God speaking. Uh, however, we're only using a few verses to really build our case for this, and we're doing a huge broad sweep of both Old Testament stories as well as uh, and then talking about Jesus himself, uh, what we want to do is just talk a little bit more some other places we see John intentionally toying around with new creation metaphors and um, his understanding of what Jesus is doing. Uh, and we see, it, we see it in a few places. Uh, one place that we often miss in these first couple chapters is John sets up a seven-day week. Uh, he's going to say in different places, he'll say uh, the first day, then the next day, then the next day. Uh, and then the next day, so now we're at four days, and then he's going to skip to the seventh day, and the seventh day will end at the wedding feast. So that's one place we see it. We've already saw it with uh, John 1, 1, uh, in the beginning uh, was the word, an obvious reference to Genesis 1, 1. Uh, what are some other places you guys think of? I just was putting something together as you were saying that he ends his creation days at the wedding feast. This is where he picks up his seven signs, Yep, which is going to end with, raising someone from the dead, and then his eighth sign will be his own resurrection and being mistaken as a gardener, which is a throwback to... Yep. In that, there was like four different references yeah. and throwbacks to so the creation. Let's go, let's go through that one more time. So he ends his seven-day, the initial week, with uh, on the first sign. On the first sign. And so then we see... And let me just pause signs. there. And okay. that's a big deal from a literary perspective because he doesn't have to point out the days. He doesn't have to be there. There's no reason. So when a when a rabbinical author like John is purposely intentionally putting something in the text, you have to ask the question why. And the first thing you're going to think of when you start hearing first day, second day, third day, is going to be creation. Creation. And so, okay, so you can go back. But that that day thing is not just Paul Patterson like flippantly pulling some things out. Like that's deliberately there in yeah. the text. The fact that he he stuffs, and if you look at John, I mean, he's he tends to be long and drawn out. Like he's not going to be talking about necessarily um, this natural sequential order of things. Uh, like he, there's a whole chapter for for one conversation uh, over and over again throughout right. John. Uh, the fact he shoves a whole week within the first two chapters is unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, so it tells you something. So anyway, the, the first week ends at the first at the first sign, and then we have. 
as you mentioned, seven signs that ends with... He raises Lazarus from the dead. And then, there's, and then the eighth sign is his own resurrection. Which begins a new week. New week, and he's mistaken as a as a gardener, which is totally... So, so it brings us full circle back to the garden. Yeah. Which is yeah. brilliant. I, and I think the, the seven great I ams is tied into that, too. Anything connected to the number seven is going to be a throwback to Krishna at some level. And, and there's seven discourses, seven conversations that John's going to have with different people. Right. Uh, and that's going to be mixed in with the seven signs. Yep. Um, he's going to have... When you get to uh, the second half of John, which they call the Hour of Glory, some commentators, yeah, it starts with Jesus being arrested in a garden, and it's going to end with... Um, it doesn't end with him being in a garden, but you'll come back around a few chapters later with him being in the garden again. Um, you have Pilate's proclamation of Behold the Man, uh, which is going to be thinking, uh, thinking of the creation of man. Jesus saying, It is finished, referencing God's completed work in Genesis 1 and 2. You're going to have Jesus being buried in a garden tomb. You're going to have the, John's going to tell you this is the first day of the week. And then um, when Jesus is raised, you're going to have the gardener motif. He tells you again the first day of the week. But then the very next verse, he's going to say the eighth day of the week. Because uh, he's, he's still playing with this cre- uh, creation week metaphor. And then in verse 22 of chapter 20, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Like, if you don't know what John's doing, this is this verse should make it blatantly obvious what John's doing. That Jesus is trying to reboot creation, or that there's this new creation taking forth through the work and redemption of Jesus right, right here in our midst. Right. Which is why I think I felt so good in prepping for our sermon this week of making the leap from... John's reference to baptism yeah. to the other gospel writers and what they did with his baptism because what they did with Jesus' baptism in the image of water is what John does in his entire gospel, yeah. which would be impossible to do in a sermon. But really what we talked about this Sunday was a capsule, a little small dose of what the entire gospel of John is mm-hmm. really trying to accomplish. Well, and the other gospel writers will toy with this. Like Matthew, um, it, the, ver- it isn't the first word is going is to be Genesis. Uh, the Genesis of Matthew. Right. Um, it, it, it's going to talk about the, the the Genesis work, the 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 account. Matthew's account starts with this idea of Genesis, but when he get when he gets to baptism, he's going to use the same imagery, uh, this idea of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. Uh, this isn't unique to John. Uh, in fact, John almost he almost records it in such a short. Like he assumes his readers are familiar with the other Gospels. Like he assumes they already they already know this story, but he still needs to record it so that way you that way you know what he's referencing, uh, what the what the point is that he's trying to make. Um, which makes me think of uh, the waters. Then, um, like when he talks about the waters, he talks about the deep. Uh, th- this is more than just a casual religious ceremony this is more this is deep imagery that he's that, that he's wrestling with here mm-hmm. yeah I agree to go back to what you're saying too your uh, Yahonian literature um, when John sums up his entire writings um, in first John 1 he says this is the this is the testimony that we have received. He's going to boil it all down to just a couple statements, and he's basically going to say, 
that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with him, then we walk in the light. And I, I really feel like he's, there's just so much Genesis met, uh, terminology packed into those few, into those few words. And so when he sums, when he summarizes his entire gospel writing, that's how he summarizes it. Right. Like, God is light in him. There is no darkness. And if we walk with him, then we walk in the light. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like those John themes. John's pretty cool. I'm just saying. Pretty smart guy. Yeah. I like him a lot. Yeah, you do. Uh, anything else we want to say about new creation or maybe some somewhere else that you see new creation pop up that you think is applicable to this conversation? Not necessarily. I mean, it's all over the place, but yeah, nothing that. So here, uh, yeah, actually, now sorry, just a tangent. I was thinking a lot of Jesus's miracles and some of the things he does, like when he spits in the dirt and makes mud. Uh huh. Um, like we we look at that and go, "What the heck is going on?" That's that's weird. Um, but if you understand the creation of man and the creating from the dirt, like that's some good stuff. Actually, there's a there's a moderate uh, at Madrash. There's a midrash. That's uh, that teaches that God uh, spit in the dirt to create man to make the clay, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. which is fun. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so this kind of brings it full question. Why why are we looking at John? And I know Aaron touched on this um, in his sermon, but why for Advent? Why did we decide to go with John? Because it seems doesn't make sense. Like John doesn't have at least on the surface, doesn't have any uh, detailed account of Advent, of Christmas, of the Incarnation, um, of the birth of Jesus. Like, why are, why are we going with John? I would start out by saying I want to encourage our families to read the Christmas story, read the Advent readings, along with each week that tell the story of Jesus' birth. That's really good. What I think John's up to, part of what John's up to in his gospel, is trying to help people understand this arrival of Jesus on the scene. And and a piece of that, like, he went to his own people, but they didn't even accept him. And I think one of the, one of the questions, if I'm a Roman and living in Asia Minor, and you come to me like, God became man? Like, well, how come I didn't hear about that? Mm-hmm. Like, how come that wasn't bigger news? Well, part of it, I think, is John wrestling with some of these legitimate questions that people are having. About, like, this is this is, sounds like a really big deal. How come it didn't make a bigger splash? Well, he went to his own people, and his own people didn't even accept him. Yeah. So I think a piece of what John's doing is taking the the notion of Jesus coming and being a man and, and dwelling amongst us and unveiling it in a way that people can go, oh, so that's what happened, and that's why we didn't hear about it, and that's why. And I feel like what he's doing is pulling off a lot of the themes that get drawn out of the Advent season that we focus on. So for us, it's just a good fit to talk about this idea of Advent through the through the first few chapters of John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to play off of that, I feel like uh, one, of the, one of the things we learned from John is that the arrival, the Advent of Jesus is a big deal. Like it changed everything. The arrival of Jesus changed everything. and So we titled this series The Living Word after spending a year in the text in 2016. Because we can spend, we can. I love what you talked about last week, Aaron, because we could spend a whole year in the text. Um, but if we, if we don't let Jesus, the person, the Christ, 
if we don't let Jesus the Christ shine a light on how we read the text, how we interpret the text, if the word doesn't become, if we don't realize that the word became living in Jesus so that that word can become alive in us, mm-hmm. uh, we could, I mean, spending all year in the text is great no matter what, but we could still miss the boat. And that's what we talked about last week. But that, I think that's a lot of John keeps trying to say Jesus is everything you're looking for. You're looking for the text? Jesus is the text. You're looking for the Greek gods? Jesus is what you're looking for. The arrival of the Christ has changed the course of human history. For you and I today as much as as any any other time in history. And John will keep playing with all those things, like with all the discourses that he's going to have. People are going to be asking him questions, and there's going to be this dialogue back and forth. If he is the living word, that makes sense then. Like, there's going to be this wrestling match. There's going to be these questions about what this means and why are you doing this, God? And, um, like, how do, we, how do we do this? And so it makes a lot of sense. One thing that's unique to John is uh, the first half of his book, uh, he's going to talk about what Jesus has, has, is doing and has done and is saying. But right in the middle, John shifts. Uh, and there, you could tell because uh, through the first half of John, Jesus keeps referring to his his hour that has not come. So over and over again, he keeps saying, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. And then right in the middle, when the Gentiles come to seek him, his hour has come now. And then right in the middle, right after that, Jesus starts saying, uh, just as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And so halfway through John's gospel, he rewrites the incarnation narrative to invite us to do the same. This isn't, and which goes back to what you were saying, Aaron, like, Jesus came to his own and he wasn't accepted. Maybe that's how it should look for us sometimes when we go through bad times, um, when we start challenging the status quo, like we're going to rustle feathers, um, especially for the people that John's writing to uh, later. He's going to be writing after the Gospels. Um, John's going to write about how uh, Jesus was thrown out, of a, thrown, out of a, thrown out of a synagogue, which might be a story that some people might be need, might need to hear when John writes it. Um, people being thrown out of synagogue, like Jesus was also thrown out of synagogue, uh, just so you know. So my real answer to why we're using John for Advent is what Aaron said in his sermon last week, which is Paul wouldn't let us use any <laughs> other book, which you can tell as he talks about it, he, uh, he's he got some time under his belt in this gospel. Uh, John, uh, I think we've, we vastly underestimate John. We do. Uh, it's often the book that we tell new Christians to read first, which <laughs> I'm not full of pictures, which I'm not disagreeing with. Cause this is why John's so brilliant. Like it's an easy book to understand. Kind of not really actually not at all. Um, so there's that, there's that one point to it, but we also turn to John for these little catchphrases that we coin and create platitudes out of. Right. And I think we totally miss what John's doing. Like John doesn't write John, uh, John doesn't write John chapter one to prove that Jesus is God. Like as shocking as that might be, like he isn't doing that. Right. He, instead, he's telling a narrative about what God is up to and what he has been up to and how it, how the arrival of Christ is changing the world, how God is establishing his kingdom on earth right now. And you're in the midst of it. Right. Um, and, and I think this is an important way to understand Advent. And I think John just takes it. He, he takes a different view he, he tackles it from a different angle. Um, 
because the gospel has been around for a while now, Christianity has been out for the go- the other three gospels have been out. Uh, there's the there's these new conversations happening. I think we talked about this with the seven signs. I uh, know the seven great I am's. Um, like John, like much later on in John's ministry, like he's gonna hear he's gonna be wrestling with all these topics, and he's gonna recall all the things that Jesus did and said that are applicable to what is going on now. And so he's going to, quote, unquote, rewrite the Advent narrative uh, for a different group of people for a different time. I feel like we've got to stop this guy. All right, well, all right. So on that, you want to be done? Sure. That's good. Good place to end. All right, well, uh, uh, yeah, so keep reading the... Uh, by the way, you can, look, you can look up the Advent readings online. You could just Google those. That's easy to find. Uh, read those with your kids. Don't let these stories become um, fall victim to the fairy tale uh, syndrome where we get so used to them that we think they're normal. Um, these are crazy stories. They're revolutionary. Uh, so don't invite your kids, uh, invite your family to wrestle with the mystery and um, well, the magic and the audaciousness of the Advent story. Until next week, God bless. Thanks for listening to this week's footnotes, and please keep the discussion going. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can connect with us by emailing comment at liferotp.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at liferotp. You can find the individual members of the teaching team on Twitter as well, or just visit us on a Sunday morning and connect face-to-face. We hope you'll join us again next week, and until then, God bless.